0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, welcome to the first Monday evening talk of the year. And i have going to use this as an occasion to uh, start a series of talks and for the plan is for the next ten times that I'm teaching here Monday evening, to give a, a series of talks on an introduction to Buddhism. And um, the um, and I'm not here every Monday, so you could check the IMC calendar to see if I'm here if you want to just come for that series. And um, uh, one of the one of the things maybe that's prompting me to do this is that. Um, when we first moved here and uh, now it's been some nineteen years ago, eighteen years ago. Nineteen years ago, nineteen years ago and it was the first Monday. In January was the first, you know, talk here. The um before that we were for many years in Palo Alto in the church there. And uh, there was a very strong uh uh desire and, in this Insight Meditation movement, when it first came to this country, to uh, not include a lot of the Buddhism in it, in order to have mindfulness be accessible to people who M- Buddhism would be uh, turn off. There are a lot of people who are interested in Buddhism, and and so um, it was kind of uh, left. A lot of Buddhism was left out of the Insight Meditation teacher teachings, and I'm very happy with that because uh, mindfulness practice is a phenomenally effective practice that supports people in all kinds of ways and um, the buddhism part is kind of optional for mindfulness but mindfulness is not optional for buddhism and so we're kind of content with this but in the these 20 30 years that i've been teaching now the the uh, uh, the environment for mindfulness has changed dramatically uh, now you know mindfulness is everywhere because you have people have it on their apps uh, and the amount of mindfulness in our society is just astronomical. I mean, compared to, you know, years ago when it was hard to find and it was hardly here. And I was here at the kind of a, not exactly the beginning of its time in the United States, but you know, there was a time it wasn't even here, right? And um, and now it's secular mindfulness is just uh, it's in the schools and believe it or not, my son in college. He, he's in a fraternity, which is you know odd enough for me, my background, that that's the case. And um, and um, and there's a meditation group in his fraternity. Now that's not that's a congreg- you know, <laughs> cognitive <laughs> dissonance. I don't know what to you know make of that, given my background and what all this all the associations I had with these things. And um, and I recently I was asked to come to a local college and. Talk to them. They were really eager to get more mindfulness because they say our students come to our college uh, already knowing mindfulness. They learned it at school, high schools, or in society and everywhere, and there's apps uh, galore for mindfulness. So, what it means is that um, we don't have to be so careful anymore. Now we can be Buddhist. And uh, you know, we still—I think—I still think of us as kind of Buddhist light. We're kind of like almost, yeah, it's a kind of Buddhist light. Um, you know, I, I the—I uh, don't—but th- uh, it does give us an opportunity, or maybe um, uh, uh, you know, uh, is to not have to be so careful anymore. And what we have to offer is something different now than just mindfulness. We have to—we have—we have the opportunity to offer it now much more freely in its original context of of Buddhism. So I think that's a little bit behind this offering and now an introduction to Buddhism for these 10 weeks. So first, some more introductory words about Buddhism, and then we're gonna uh, go into uh, the world of Buddhist myth. Um, In in an overarching way, a generalization that uh, I've heard no one else ever make there are uh, two kinds of religions in this planet, and what they share, and what calls, what the, what, uh, what we what we uh, makes them religions, is they have to do with teachings and practices that uh, are of ultimate value, the ultimate meaning, ultimate purpose of people's lives. Meaning, it has it represents the highest purpose or values that people live their lives by. And and the purpose in which they want to infuse or bring into everything they do. It's kind of like the foundation of what their life is about. And so whatever it is that brings that kind of ultimate value, purpose, that's that pervasive in their lives, I call it religion. You might have a different definition. You might not want to use my definition. But with that definition, there are two types of religion. Generally, there's uh, theistic religions and there's humanistic religions. And theistic religions, as the name sa- says, is uh, founded and based upon uh, deities, that divinities, gods, such things and often coming with that is some relationship to a transcendent world, a transcendent reality like so there's if there's a heaven that would be a transcendent reality, something completely separate and distinct from this world here and uh, that often goes along with theistic religions and uh, that the that uh, transcendent reality of different types. Uh, plays a big feature. And um, so Buddhism is in the class of some religions which are humanistic in that they're human-centered. Uh, and there there isn't a transcendent uh, being or div- divine essence that's in a different dimension of reality in a heavenly realm or some transcendent reality that's quite radically distinct from this world we have here. And um, so the humanistic religions tend to be based on uh, values and purposes and experiences that human beings can know for themselves. Theistic religions are often based. Many people who participate in them are based on things that generally people don't actually know for themselves, but they come from through books or comes through teachers or tradition or something. It's a generalization. And. Um, and uh, so Buddhism is really based uh, um, in the Buddhism that certainly I teach, the Buddhism that I feel like I belong to and the Theravada Buddhism uh, is humanistic in nature. But historically, over time, um, it has, uh, because of maybe human nature or something, um, uh, it's uh, 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 often kind of started to evolve towards theistic directions. And there are forms of Buddhism that would be, I think in my definition, theistic forms of Buddhism where there are kind of supernatural beings, kind of godlike beings, where there are transcendent realms and heavens are very important and such things like that. And uh, so Buddhism is not separate from that. There's many kinds of Buddhisms. But uh, uh, the Buddhism that uh, I, we teach here at IMC comes from the Buddhism of Southeast Asia, Buddhism of Thailand and Burma, Cambodia, Sri Lanka, and a tradition called Theravada Buddhism. And um, vada means like doctrine or teaching, and Tara means the elders. So it's the teachings of the elders. So it's the teachings of the, the ancients who were the Buddha and his disciples. And this tradition makes the claim that uh, it represents the earliest teachings of the Buddhism going right back to the historical Buddha. And, um, and if there's any living Buddhist tradition that can make that claim kind of responsibly or something, it's the Theravada Buddhist tradition, So this tradition here. Uh, most other uh, uh, forms of Buddhism that survived into the Common Era uh, have other kind of origins uh, in Asia and teachings and stuff like that. So, um, and if you go back and really dig into this earliest tradition and try to really do some text-critical studies to see what was really being taught back there and what was the earliest teachings of Buddhism, the more you dig and look, the more it has a very strong humanistic quality to it. Um, And really based on what people can experience and know for themselves, um, uh, pointing to our own experience, pointing to ourselves being our own teacher, and 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 pointing to something we can discover in ourselves of ultimate value of ultimate purpose ultimate meaning that can be a you know so central to people's lives that it's could be called a religious life so um but uh you know so in the earliest time that's my reading of it it's relatively humanistic, but there's a little strange thing that goes on, and that is. That it seems like from the earliest records we have, uh, this person that we now call the Buddha didn't quite want to go go along with being defined or being seen in the usual ways in which people identify a human being. He didn't quite, you know, maybe have the wanted to like he didn't want to be identified, you know, as a I don't know what, but um, as a plumber, or as a parent, or as a, you know, a son, or, uh, or he didn't want to be identified as many things. In fact, if uh, someone asked him, who, who are you, one very famous story, he answered, I am awake well that doesn't tell me much (laughs) where were you born and you know who were your parents and you know it's like I'm awake and um, and then another uh, the most common way that he referred to himself like the name he used for himself was this little unusual um, title called Tathagata so it's very rare that he calls himself Buddha and he's um, uh, other people are calling him that but uh, he's called he called himself the Tathagata and the Tathagata uh, probably means, we don't really know what it means. It has two possible meanings. It means either the one, the, the, usually people say, the one who is thus gone, or the one who is thus come. And uh, I think, we, uh, the, the, uh, I, I suspect the meaning means something like more closely to something like, the one who is thus. So who are you? Like this. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't give you much, right? You know, you get what you see. You know, I'm, this is what, I, thus. In some ways, it's quite refreshing to just be thus, just not have to be definition, not have to be anything for anyone and not have to prove yourself or apologize for yourself or explain yourself. You just, you know, just show up and you don't carry any baggage with you of your identity and you just, uh, you, you know, I'm thus, I'm like this and let, and then we'll see where we go from there. Um, so, uh, so in this kind, this kind of way, uh, also he didn't seem, he did talk about himself some, but uh, mostly he talked about himself a, as a example for what he had to teach. It didn't seem like there's no biography of him in his lifetime, in the early life. He didn't kind of say, no, I'm going to tell you my story of my life. Uh, that he didn't do, and... He didn't want to define himself in ordinary terms, human terms. So was he human? And, well, it's, you know, well, of course he was human, but he's kind of like a little bit amorphous, a little bit not, he's not quite there in the way we expect from a human being in terms of a definition. So even at the, seemingly at the earliest kind of records we have, he's kind of a little bit not quite being described or understood in ordinary human terms. Well, it turns out that that's also then a very nice blank uh, slate, kind of an inkblot you to fill in. And down through the centuries, Buddhists have filled it in. And, uh, and there are some pretty phantasmagoric stories about the Buddha and his life and who he is. And uh, you, can, you can wa- if you watch the development of the historical texts over time, you watch the growth of what I call the Buddhist myth. You're not usually supposed to talk about others' religions as they have myths because, you know, myths are not supposed to be true, right? And they believe them. But since I'm a Buddhist, I think I'm allowed to call them myths. <laughs> uh, that uh, they are these, you know, amazing myths. And, uh, that uh, I don't take as being literally true. It's just a little bit too, too much to believe as being true. But they're kind of fascinating. And fascinating as myths. Uh, I th- there's uh, Some people point out that myths have their own truth. Sometimes myths can be more true than reality because they point to some underlying, uh, underlying patterns, underlying realities, underlying kind of uh, processes, truths, understandings of our life that really speak to people, kind of like poetry. So I'm going to offer you uh, the myth, the myth of the Buddha's life. We know very, very little that's actually about him as a person. We don't know what his name was. Nowadays we say his name was Siddhartha. But uh, the word, his name, uh, Siddhartha, first appears in text 500 years after he was born. So it's possible that, you know, he, you know, that was his name, but it seemed they appeared much later. There's all kinds of aspects of people, st- st- stories people make about the Buddha. Most of what I'm going to say today um, is not, probably never happened. <laughs> and, um, but it makes a good story, especially, uh, and, and I think it's a valuable story, if you're willing to suspend disbelief enough to to take it as poetry, to take it as kind of pointing to something about every person, something about you. And and I'll give you at least one example as I go along of how I do this around the Buddha's birth uh, when I teach children. So, um, once upon a time... Far, far away, <laughs> there was uh, in India, northern India, there was a king and a queen. we, we don 't know that the Buddha 's parents were kings and queens, but they gave birth to the Buddha who, as a prince. there's no much later, this is like hundreds, hundreds of years later, this came up this kind of idea. so i 'm going to stop making these caveats or these like footnotes, footnotes, but just to give you an example. so once upon a time, there were these kings. And um, king and queen, and at some point, the queen was pregnant to give birth, and um, she, and and uh, she then, as apparently was a custom, uh, was going to give birth in her own home country. So she left the where she was living with the king, and was walking back home to her country, and on the way the uh, contractions began or something. She knew she was going to give birth. And so halfway between the countries under a tree, she, st- she, she stood standing, lifted one hand up to hold the branch. And um, the Buddha was born out of her side because that's what is pure or something. <laughs> and um, the early cesarean. And, uh, and the Buddha uh, popped out, and the first thing he did was he took seven steps. That's pretty precocious. He took seven steps, and then uh, he pointed one finger to the sky and one finger to the earth, and he said, heaven above, earth below, I am the world-honored one. So that's pretty good for a newborn. Oh, and then as he walked the seven steps, he didn't actually touch the ground. Uh, uh, Deities came and put their hands or lotus petals or something underneath his feet and held them up so he didn't have to touch the the ground. So I'll tell this this story to kids and I say, that's strange, you know, that someone would say that about themselves. I'm the best in the world, you know. However, the way we should understand, can understand this story, and I go around to each kid and I say, you're the most wonderful person in the world. You're the most wonderful. You're the most wonderful. You're the best. You're the, I go around all the kids like that. And they said, there's a, some way in which everyone is the best, everyone is the most world honored one. And that's the, you know, so that's my interpretation of the story. That everyone comes to realize that they're unique and special and important and valuable. And then the whole enterprise of Buddhism is to inhabit that so thoroughly that you end up having no conceit whatsoever. Isn't that great? So even the idea of conceit and being defined that way, you want to be free of that. But, so you start with that kind of as underlying basic foundation. So that's my interpretation of that story. So um, then he was raised um, and, uh, by the king and the queen and oh, but soon after his birth, uh, there, was a, there came a, um, a sage, uh, Atisa, I think his name is, came to see the baby. And he looked at the baby and looked at his signs, looked at, you know, could read signs on the body or something. And the sage said, uh, Lo and behold, this is a phenomenal person. This person will grow up. Either to be a world-ruling monarch, rule the whole world, or uh, a great sage, a Buddha. Well, the father didn't think much of this, you know, religious life. You know, for his son, this was his first son, and he, you know, he the idea of being, you know, following in the, the footsteps of the father and taking over the kingdom and becoming a world-renowned monarch. I mean, that was the way to go. So um, the father then built uh, all these palaces to raise, three palaces apparently, to raise his son. And uh, one for each season, The three seasons they had. It in, this is now in the, in the foothills of the Himalayas. And, and uh, built these palaces in order to protect his son so his son would not see any human suffering. Because if he was afraid if he saw human suffering, really saw the human condition, that then he would go the religious route. But he wanted to make sure he went the king route. So, um, you know, he made sure that uh, he was living in a gated community, made sure sure that he went to um, private schools, (laughs) and, uh, you know, and had all the luxuries of his life, and, you know, and and, uh, probably lived in Woodside. and so um so that's an interesting way to, to be raised, and um, at some point, uh, as a young man, uh I think it was it was just, you know so he was married, probably as it was a custom of his time uh, when he was uh, late teens, and he was married for a good number of years because it, it says that this happened probably around the time he was twenty nine uh he um he got kind of curious about what's outside the palace walls, and so he had a charioteer, his charioteer, to kind of get the horses ready and get the chariots ready and 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 uh, and somehow was able to get out, sneak out of the palace and um, and went riding around to see part of the world and lo and behold he saw something he'd never seen before. He saw an old person. And he asked his charioteer, what's that? And the charioteer said, that is an old person. It's the nature of all people to become old. Wow. So then they went back home. The next night or the next day, they snuck out again. And this time they saw a sick person probably really sick. The Buddha said, what's that? That's a sick person. It's the nature of all beings to be sick. Wow. He had no idea. He was so protected. And so then, uh, the next day they went out and they said, what is that? That's a dead person. And... uh, for, coincidentally, the first time I ever saw a dead person was not far from where the Buddha saw it in the myth. It was in Kathmandu when I was 11. And uh, they were carrying a body down to, down to the river to be burned. So uh, maybe you saw something similar. And the charioteer said, that's a dead person. It's the nature of all people to die. The fourth day the Buddha went out, uh, they saw a renunciant, someone who had, contemplative, who had devoted himself to the spiritual life, religious life, and he was walking down the street in a very different way than the Buddha had ever seen anybody walk, calmly and self-possessed with kind of clarity and presence and simplicity and conducting himself very different than most people, not, not looking at the billboards and the advertisements and ogling people. And um, and so um, the Buddha said, "What is that? That's a renunciant. That's a contemplative. So these these four sights are called the four heavenly messengers. And um, and these are the messengers that came to the Buddha to show him what this human condition is like that he'd been protected from." And I think it's not uncommon for people to, whether it's consciously done or unconscious, uh, uh, or and, you know, to be protected from a lot of what goes on in this human life, to not really see the uh, the degree of suffering that exists in this world and the challenges of the world that people have, and but even the, what we all share, you know, if we're lucky enough, we get old, we'll be sick someday, we're going to die. And for the Buddha, this became an existential crisis. This became something that uh, you can imagine someone growing already fully grown to see this for the first time. What's going on here? I had no idea. This made a huge impact. So much so that the palace life uh, now seemed uninteresting for him. He felt like now I have to get to the bottom of this. I have to kind of see what's going on here. I have to understand this. I have to find... What's be What's beyond this, or the freedom, or the awakening, or something that has greater value, or find something here. So then, the next night, the Buddha snuck out again, and uh, and uh, had his charioteer take him to the edges of the country, and then when he was going to cross a river, he took uh, his sword and he cut off his beautiful long hair, and uh, took all his jewels, uh, royal jewels, off, and his nice clothes off. Gave him his charioteer, and then went forth into the world, and that's called the great renunciation, renouncing the palace life. And uh, many of people know that the Buddha also. uh, That's the way this myth goes. uh, That same day, uh, his wife gave birth to his first son, only son. And uh, and in spite of just having a newborn baby, he left, and that's pretty shocking in modern terms. Uh, in the ancient world, some people say that um, uh, he, he, as, a, as the male of the household, of the royal household, he had fulfilled his duty. Uh, the most important role he had was to make sure there was an heir to the throne. And so once he had a son, he was free to do this, go off and discover something. And I think in some ways, that's pretty dramatic what he did. But remember that there were no schools, universities. There were no IMCs down the street. <laughs> there was uh, uh, you know, so little that was available for someone who really wanted to understand this world, understand spirituality. Their psych- there wasn't, you wasn't a therapist you could go see down the street either. There was you know, nothing. And so what there was, the only thing that was available uh, for people with that kind of inquiring spirit, that kind of existential need, was uh, to go forth, leave the regular lay life and be a renunciant, uh, be an ascetic, be a a contemplative and live that life. So then he went off. And, um, And the first thing he did was he went and found the meditation teachers of his time. And those teachers taught him how to go into very deep states of trance. And he became the best of his, the best students of his teachers, became equals to them in the ability to go into deep medita- meditation trances. And he realized that um, now that he had mastered his teacher's teachings, uh, this didn't really address the existential issues that he was uh, concerned with. And so he left them. The other option that was available at his time was ascetic, ascetic practices. Uh, starving oneself and, and uh, eating just one rice kernel a day and, um, you know, sleeping, having no clothes, sleeping outdoors all the time and just, you know, severe asceticism. One of them was holding one's breath until one fainted almost. And and there are gruesome stories of, you know, you know because, you know, uh, what, these myths that got formed around the Buddha, uh, he always had to be the person who was best at anything, with Everything. Because that's what makes him—that's you know good publicity for, <laughs> for getting new, new <coughs> adherents, and so he, um, you know, he did asceticism you know more than better than anyone else had done, to the point where he um, he collapsed, and uh, I think on the edge of a river, and lay there as if dead, and the people who saw him laying there thought, oh, this person is dead. But somehow he revived himself enough and he thought, you know, I've now done asceticism better than anyone, right up to the edge of dying. This is not providing the answer either. Dying is not going to provide the answer. So then he decided to start eating. When he started eating to get some energy, he had some uh, companions who were also ascetics who then saw that he had, um, uh, you know, now he was indulging, now he was giving up the asceticism. So they were kind of upset with him, so they left. and He was left alone. And then he um, uh, went to looking for a place to sit, and he found this tree that's called the Bodhi tree. And um, nowadays it's a ficus tree. And uh, it was a beautiful place, not far from a river. And uh, he sat there, and he's wondering what to do. And he, what's, what's next? and he'd done the different things that the religious people of his time had offered and it didn't work. And then he remembered a story, remembered an event in his life, that I think the myth says it happened when he was seven, and uh, which his father was doing the royal, the first uh, ceremonial plowing of the spring. And uh, so his father and the entourage was out in the fields plowing, and the seven year old was left under a rose apple tree at the edge of the fields. And it was probably a comfortable spring day, nice weather, a feeling of safety, of contentment, just watching some activity in the fields, maybe. And in that, sitting upright, just sitting there and not, you know, not doing anything, not being anything, not trying to accomplish anything, just kind of sitting there in a very easy, relaxed way, his mind got settled, relaxed. Um, uh, collected unified and he entered into the first of the deep jhana meditations into a state of great ease, peace, well-being and as an adult he remembered that and he said that, that well-being I had that sense of well-being and peace and joy that I felt in that meditation state as a seven year old that, that is the path to liberation because that doesn't depend on anything in the world. It's an experience of well-being that's free from preoccup, free of being caught up in sensual desire and, you know, and hatred and fear and all the kind of things that people get caught up in. I was really free of all those things. And the well-being I had, I kind of had a feeling of freedom in it because it just welled up from inside, not dependent on anything. He said, that's the path. And so then he, uh, he continued that evening and then through the night doing this, uh, that, that line of meditation. It's not a trance where you kind of go into some formless realm and really disconnect from the world, but it's a deep state of meditation that is very much connected to oneself, connected to this world, connected to the body, but where there's deeper and deeper st- uh, states of stillness, stillness of freedom of the mind from its preoccupations, freedom from it being caught up in thoughts and ideas, identity, desires of all kinds. And the mind, in a sense, kind of can settle on itself and come home to itself. It's no longer fragmented and caught up with all these things. It's a remarkable experience to be able to settle so deeply that we're not in conflict or preoccupied or chasing everything with our minds. And then... He was on the brink of, of awakening, of liberation. But there happens to be this semi, well, it's kind of a deity, but not, most deities are good, but this one was the bad ones. And, um, and this deity is called Mara. And Mara's job description is to prevent people from getting enlightened. And to keep people immersed in the world of sensual pleasures and sensual pursuits. And Mara saw, finally, someone's going to leave my realm. Someone's going to leave the world of sensual pursuits and become free. So we have have to stop this. So Mara came with his army. Huge battalions of people. and, um, And started to try to frighten the Buddha from getting enlightened, and threw spears and arrows and flashing swords and axes and, you know, you name it they threw at the Buddha. And the Buddha just sat under the tree meditating, and did nothing. And every arrow and spear and axe that was thrown turned into flowers and fell on the ground around him. So then Mara said, uh, Okay, this is not working. Let's try something else. So Mara got his daughters. Apparently Mara had some really gorgeous daughters (laughs) who I guess had been trained for this purpose maybe to try to somehow do what... um, I'm not going to say what. But they it, <laughs> it tried to present themselves in such a way that uh, he would be more interested in them than his pursuit for enlightenment. And they did what they do, what they did. And uh, probably it's a little bit X-rated. And, um, but Buddha sat peacefully, didn't take the bait. So then Mara came with his biggest weapon, he came up to the Buddha himself and he said, what right do you have to become enlightened? Now, not a few people have a lot of doubt about themselves. They feel they're unworthy, they feel I can't do it, I'm I'm not deserving, all kinds of things about, for many things in life. But you know, when it comes to something as powerful as spiritual liberation, It can come, it can rear its head pretty strongly. What right do you have to do this? And so um, in reply, this time the Buddha responded. And this time he took his hand like the statue here. The statue here is the picture of what the Buddha did when Mara came. Buddha sitting meditating and uh, the Buddha takes his right hand and pulls it over his, uh, his knee and touches the earth. And he says, I "I call upon the earth as my witness to become enlightened, my witness to my right to become enlightened. And when he touched the earth, there was an earthquake that attested to his worthiness to be enlightened. And that frightened Mara away. And Mara ran away, and then the Buddha continued to meditate, and then in the early morning, as the sun was rising, he, um, there was a deep transformation. He had a deep insight, a deep understanding of reality that, uh, so that he was able to let go in a very deep way. And, um, and that letting go was uh, his awakening, his enlightenment. And then he went off to teach. And he had a career teaching that lasted over 40 years. In, uh, for in ancient India, he got to be about 80 or 81 years old, which is fairly old for that time, I guess. And um, he had his challenges as a teacher, nothing too big. But uh, then at some point, when he was about 80 years old, uh, he, it was time for him to die. And he... Um, at that time, he was walking uh, back to his home country. It makes some sense, maybe you want to die in your home country, and he was walking back, um, but he didn't make it. At some point, uh, he got sick, and um, he actually got very sick twice on that trip. Um, the first time, um, uh, he was in tremendous amount of pain, and I uh, said the only way he could get some relief from his pain was in deep meditation those deep trances that he'd been taught when he was young, he then used them in order to kind of cope with the deep pain he had. When he got better, then he continued on his, on his walk. And then after eating something, and we don't know what he ate. A, the, 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 it's a, the, the the original language, the food that he ate is called pig's delight. And some people think maybe he ate some pork that was bad. Some people think it's maybe pigs delight as mushrooms to the, the wild pigs like to eat. No one knows what it is. But he was offered it by someone and, the, and he was offered to have that meal. He said, um, uh, I'm the only one who can eat this. Don't give it to anyone else. But I'll eat my, my portion then bury it. Otherwise it's not going to work for other people. So he ate it. And then he got sick. And um, so he walked a little bit further and then he... Um, felt he was gonna die, so he laid himself down under two trees. And under those two trees, he then for a couple of days or a day or something, um, uh, just was available for the villagers, the people around, his disciples to come and visit him, and he gave his last teachings. One of the last things he said to his uh, disciples was, uh, do you have any questions, any questions left over? And uh, they said no. They didn't say anything, and he asked like three times, I think. And um, don't you know? You you may be out of respect for me being sick and dying. You don't want to ask me, but please ask. And no one said anything. So okay. And then he said. um, 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 When the last thing he said was something like, um, "All things are impermanent. Uh, Practice hard. Strive with diligence." And then he closed his eyes, and he went de- into the deep meditation states that he knew. He kind of did a last uh, uh, tour through these deep meditation states. There's eight of them, and he went kind of through them systematically. And when he was in the deepest one, someone asked one of the monks, "Is he dead?" And the monk, who was also a deep meditator, knew that he was the Buddha, was not dead. He was in this deep state of meditation. And then the Buddha started coming back from his going through the deepest place to what's called the middle one, the fourth, what's called the fourth absorption. And in that deep, blissful, peaceful, very peaceful state of meditation, um, he let go. And conventionally he died, he passed away. And, um, And that's the myth. And it's a myth of someone who discovered how to be at peace so that when it was time for him to die, he could die peacefully. he was no, no fear, no distress. He had done what he had to do. He felt complete. He had passed his teaching on. He'd asked them, do you, do you have any more questions? And they said no. And, um, and to have that ability to die with that ease and peace is quite a phenomenal thing. It's quite phenomenal to have, even if none of these stories are true, it's quite phenomenal for this person who set in, ha, to have set in motion a religious tradition that continues right to today. And um, and this myth, you know, is maybe the myth of every person, the myth that somehow or other uh, we are protected. Somehow or other, we don't really understand what's really going on here for us in our lives. We don't really understand why we suffer we don't really, some of us don't really face our existential issues of our lives, some people do. And that um, in order to really uh, face them, we have to turn towards them, sit with them, and then in deep insight, deep ability to sit and really look honestly at what this life is about, we ourselves can find something called awakening. We ourselves can find a level of peace, resolution of this existential issues of our lives. So that, not that we're in a hurry to die, but when it's time to die, that uh, we've had a very full, very meaningful, very purposeful life. We've touched into something very true about human life that gives us a degree of peacefulness, (coughs) freedom, (coughs) uh, love and compassion for this world. (coughs) That is is what uh, Buddhists have been pursuing or practicing for ever since. So that's the myth. <clears throat> and uh, the Buddhism that has le- le- headed off into this the- theistic religion. When we come back next time, I won't be here next week, the next time I pick up this series, then I'll offer you much more my kind of interpretation of this humanistic Buddhism, and uh, very much you know based on some of the existing er- earliest texts, rather than from the myths. And so you'll get a very different flavor of what this Buddhism can be, but um, I hope I was hoping I could tell this story as a good storyteller and uh, tell it in a way that's inspiring as myth or as poetry. so I don't know how well I did, but but uh, <laughs> and um, so um, go out and look for your heavenly messengers and then come back and we'll take up the story from another way. Thank you.